and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Taking Perspective, the Jain Theory of Standpoints. Once there was a merchant's wife who sought a means for restoring the affections of her husband, who had deserted her for another woman. She obtained a spell that was guaranteed to put her husband in such a state that she could lead him about with a string. When she applied the spell, she discovered that this was a literal promise, not a figurative one, as her husband was transformed into a bull. She led him to a pasture to graze, and there overheard Shiva, saying that in the shade of that very tree was an herb that would restore her husband to his human form. The woman gathered every plant she could find growing beneath the tree and forced the bull to eat them all, with the result that he was restored to his human form. That's a story related by a modern-day Jain philosophy scholar, John Court. It was supposedly told by the Shvetambara Jain thinker, Hemachandra, who lived in the 12th century. As Court explains, the point of Hemachandra's story is that if we want to attain salvation, we should not embrace only one teaching or tradition, instead we should embrace them all. The Jains are the great syncretists of ancient Indian thought. Rather than defending a single point of view concerning the metaphysics of the soul and its liberation, as the various Vedic schools did, and rather than rejecting all such theories as incoherent, as Buddhists like Nagarjuna did, the Jains accept all the available points of view. Hemachandra's tale may suggest that the purpose of this is to spread out our bets. Since we cannot know for sure which teaching is the right one, we should adopt all teachings at once, trusting that the correct viewpoint is among them. But in fact, the Jain's approach is more sophisticated than that, and amounts to a profound epistemological theory in its own right. The theory is called Anekanta Vada, meaning the teaching of non-one-sidedness, we may also call it the theory of standpoints. As the name suggests, the Jains are unwilling to accept particular or one-sided answers to philosophical questions. Such an answer merely expresses a limited point of view, and will be incapable of grasping the manifold nature of things as they really are. Indeed, to grasp the world aright would be to grasp it from an unlimited number of perspectives. This has been achieved only by the omniscient figures acknowledged in Jainism, especially Mahavira, the last of the so-called Ford-makers, saviors who have shown us the way to liberation. The job of the Jain philosopher is to come as close as possible to such omniscience by coming to understand the contribution made by various intellectual traditions, while also coming to see that these traditions offer only partial truths. The origins of the theory of standpoints can be traced back to Mahavira himself and his reaction to early Buddhist doctrine. Early Buddhist tradition mentions ten unanswered questions, questions the Buddha refused to resolve. They are, Is the world eternal? Is the world not eternal? Is the world finite? Is the world not finite? Is the soul identical with the body? Is the soul different from the body? Does the Buddha exist after death? Does he not exist after death? Does he both exist and not exist after death? Does he neither exist nor not exist after death? The Buddha was unwilling to answer these questions on the ground that they were like asking, where does a flame go after it is extinguished? For the Buddhist, the right response to a question is often to point out that the presuppositions behind the question 
are faulty. Mahavira, however, responded to these questions very differently. Confronted with the third and fourth of the Buddhist questions, whether or not the world is infinite, he does not remain silent, nor does he choose between the two possibilities, instead he embraces both. The world is finite in size, but infinite in time, because it will never end. It is also infinite in properties, because the world has limitless properties of color, smell, taste, and touch. Likewise, when asked whether the soul is eternal, he said that in a sense it is, and in a sense not. It is eternal because, like the world, it never ends, but it is non-eternal because it takes on different forms in the cycle of reincarnation, first living as an animal, then as a human, then as a god. This is a central illustration for the Jain approach to philosophy. Confronted with Buddhists who say that there is no enduring self at all, and Vedic thinkers who make the self eternal and unchanging, the Jains argue that both sides are partially right, and thus partially wrong too. The Buddhists are wrong because the self or soul does persist over time, whereas Vedic thinkers are wrong to make it unchanging. Much as Madhyamaka offered a systematic expansion of themes found in the Buddhist scriptures, so the Jain theory of standpoints was a generalization of these and other reports about Mahavira. It has sometimes been proposed that Jainism underwent a period of commentary on the scriptural texts known as Agamas, with a more philosophical or logical approach emerging thereafter. But in fact, things are messier. The two genres overlapped chronologically, and issues of exegesis animated Jain philosophical literature, much as we saw in the Brahminical schools. As usual, questions of chronology are also bedeviled by the uncertainty about the dates of key figures, notably Umasvati, whose Sutra on What Is was a pioneering philosophical work, the first to set out Jain thought in the Sanskrit language. He probably wrote in the late 4th century, but this is uncertain. Other important early Jain philosophers include Kundakunda, who probably lived before Umasvati, and Siddhasena Divakara, around 700 AD. It was above all these three thinkers who developed the theory of standpoints as an expression of Mahavira's method. Actually, Mahavira himself did not have so much a special philosophical method as a special kind of insight. The Jains observe a fundamental distinction between indirect and direct ways of knowing, using here the standard term for a means of knowledge, pramana. Most of us have to make do with the indirect access provided by perception and the scriptural tradition, whereas Mahavira would have enjoyed a direct omniscience of all things. This is why he was able to see things from all points of view, whereas normal humans can grasp things only from a limited number of perspectives. Worse still is to have a limited perspective without realizing that it is limited. This is the situation of the Jains' rivals from other traditions, both Vedic and Buddhist, who fetishize a single standpoint as the only valid view on things. Though there are, in fact, an infinity of ways to look at anything, Umasvati breaks down the possible perspectives into seven types of standpoint, or naya. These are as follows. 1. The non-distinguished. 2. The general. 3. The practical. 4. The straight thread. 5. The verbal. 6. The subtle. and 7. The thus happened. Standardly, the first three were said to involve affirming substance, while the remaining four have to do with the modifications or predicates of substance. And here, we can already detect an echo of Mahavira's remarks on the soul, which, first, 
took the perspective that the soul endures, as a substance does, then the perspective that it changes over time. That contrast between the substance point of view and the modification point of view is fundamental to Jainism. Kundakunda already affirms that substance, both sentient and non-sentient, is that which undergoes and endures through all change. Substance can thus be seen from two perspectives, depending whether we want to emphasize the endurance or the change. If we contrast on the one hand Vedic approaches to metaphysics, especially Advaita Vedanta, which makes the single unchanging Brahman the only true reality, and on the other hand the Buddhist rejection of the very notion of an enduring independent substance as incoherent, we may begin to see the Jain point of view, which is precisely to convict those other schools of being nothing but points of view, one-sided because they manage only a partial perspective on things. Clearly, though, Umasvati has something more complicated in mind. He gives us seven different kinds of standpoint, not only two that emphasize substance and modification. So let's work through them, beginning with the three that involve a commitment to enduring substances. The first of these is the non-distinguished. It gets us off to a tricky start, since this is the least clear of the seven nayas and was even omitted in the overview of the theory given by Siddhasena. It seems almost to be the standpoint of refusing to take any particular standpoint, for instance by thinking of a thing without bothering to distinguish whether it is a substance or a property. It may seem strange to think of this as taking a particular perspective on things at all, but it could reflect the approach of someone who is concerned merely to catalogue what there is without worrying about what different kinds of thing there are. Somewhat puzzling, too, is that the Jains ascribe this approach to the Nyaya Vaisheshika philosophers. Presumably, their thinking is that these two schools depicted properties as if they were objects in their own right, hence failing to distinguish between substance and property. The Jains do not exactly say that this is illegitimate. To the contrary, all the viewpoints are legitimate, but only so long as they are not taken to have a monopoly on validity. The second of Umasvati's sandpoints is the general. Unfortunately, considerations of dating make it unlikely that this is a tribute to Buster Keaton's greatest film. The general standpoint involves attending only to the most general commonalities between things, and ignoring the specific properties which distinguish one thing from another. We might, for example, note that everything shares the property of being an existent. When adopted dogmatically and not as just one possible standpoint, this attitude leads to monism in metaphysics, Advaita Vedanta is unsurprisingly fingered as the leading culprit. The third standpoint is the practical, and it is the complement of the previous one. Here we instead stress the special distinguishing features of things and the way they can be classified under a variety of headings. It is from this point of view that a philosopher would say that every existent is either a substance or a property. Some Jains like to place the Charvaka materialists into this camp, probably because they classify both the material body and the spiritual self as substances rather than properties, and thus come to assume that they are the same kind of entity. Fourth up is the standpoint of the straight thread, an approach that pays attention only to what is presently perceived, like the pleasure or pain one is feeling right now. Those who take this to be the uniquely correct standpoint wind up reducing enduring substances and persons to the ephemeral deliverances of the senses. Of course it is the Buddhists, or at least some of them, who make this kind of mistake. Notice that in explaining these first four standpoints, the Jain writers supply us with a kind of survey of Indian metaphysics. 
This is why the Jains are often useful as a source of information about non-Jain thinkers, why we were, for instance, able to turn to the Jain thinker Prabhachandra for information about the otherwise obscure tradition of Charvaka philosophy. Notice also that these other schools are not just being named, they are also being shamed, exposed as one-sided. It is sometimes thought that the theory of standpoints is a kind of abstract embodiment of the Jain commitment to nonviolence. The thought here would seem to be that disagreeing with people is a form of conflict, a kind of intellectual violence. To avoid such aggression, the Jains find a way of agreeing with everyone by adopting their theory of non-one-sidedness. But this is to overlook that the Jains do not simply congratulate the other schools on being partially right. If anything, they stress that the other schools are partially wrong. The Jains, no less than their rivals, emphasize that knowledge leads to liberation. But their understanding of knowledge requires the liberated person to see things from a variety of viewpoints, whereas a Brahminical or Buddhist thinker manages to adopt just one standpoint. The Jains have no hesitation in asserting that such one-sided philosophical theories are false, precisely insofar as they are one-sided. Nor do they seem to think that engaging in disagreement or debate with such benighted philosophers would violate their vow of nonviolence. Hence the story of a Jain who held forth in a public dispute against a Buddhist at such great length that his opponent finally died from exhaustion. But let's get back to our sevenfold list of standpoints. The three we have not yet discussed show the Jains joining in that most typical of ancient Indian philosophical pursuits, analyzing language. This is already clear from the name of the fifth standpoint, the verbal. Here, we take grammar as a guide to reality, for example by inferring from the use of past, present, and future verbs that the subjects of these verbs are different from one another. According to this standpoint, if I say, the mountain existed, and then, the mountain will exist, I am referring to two different mountains. This may seem rather odd, but it's a kind of perspective we saw very recently, in Madhyamaka philosophy. Remember that Nagarjuna, at least according to his commentator Chandrakirti, thought that we should be able to distinguish the axe that is seen from the axe that is used for chopping, with this distinction being marked by grammatical case. One axe is the object of an action, the second an instrument. Here again, the Jains seem to be right in thinking that it's a perspective that could be useful so long as it is not applied indiscriminately, in a one-sided way. It's quite plausible to say that the grammatical contrast between subject and predicate may often correspond to a real metaphysical contrast between a thing and its property, but it would not do to infer metaphysical distinctions wherever we have grammatical distinctions. A German who did this would be led by the grammatical gender of German nouns to think that doors are female, houses neuter, and tables masculine. The next item in the group of linguistic standpoints is the subtle. This might worry you since what has come so far was already pretty subtle, but in fact the point made here is quite straightforward. From this perspective, we distinguish different words that refer to the same thing, words that have different etymologies. The example given is the lord of the gods. He is called both Indra, which comes from the verb to reign, and Chakra, derived from the verb to be able. Though both names pick out the same god, they differ in meaning because of their derivation. This is a striking point because, leaving aside the focus on etymology, it anticipates the contrast between sense and reference made by the German logician Gottlob Frege. His illustration was that morning star and evening star both refer to Venus, 
but are different in meaning, as is clear from the fact that someone might not know that the last heavenly body seen in the morning is in fact the same object as the first one seen at night. The final standpoint is called the thus happened. Here, we note that many words have functional senses. They refer to objects on the basis of a capacity or function which the object can perform, like cook or swimmer. From this perspective, we should use such terms only when the object is actually performing its function and not at other times. If we name objects after the capacities and powers they possess, we refer to them only insofar as they are actually exercising the capacities. Thus, we would call someone a swimmer only when she is actually swimming. This standpoint seems to be a linguistic version of the earlier straight thread standpoint, which reduces everything to what is currently present to us. Adopting the thus-happened standpoint dogmatically would lead to the fallacy of refusing to admit that the swimmer is a swimmer when she is sleeping. Again, we saw an idea like this in Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti, who argued that the running giraffe is distinct from the seeing giraffe because of the different actions they are performing. Let's conclude by seeing how these standpoints were used in practice. A nice example is found in Siddhasena, who uses them to deal with the aforementioned problem of substance. Leaving aside the first, non-determined standpoint, he begins with a general perspective that sees all substance as one. As we said, this would be the approach of Advaita monism. The practical standpoint distinguishes substance into different types, which is the attitude of the pluralists among other Vedic schools. Since the straight thread standpoint ignores everything but present reality, it yields a theory of constant flux such as we find in Buddhists. Grammarians cannot see past the verbal perspective, here one might think of Bhatrihari, while other language enthusiasts use the subtle standpoint to classify substances through the etymology of the names of those substances. And we've just seen how the thus happened standpoint would involve reducing the substance to its currently performed action. Broadly speaking, only the general and practical standpoints can do justice to the stability and independence of substances, while the remaining ones capture something about the modifications undergone by substances. Again, to adopt a one-sided standpoint is to get things partially right, but to adopt it narrowly and exclusively is to get things wrong. It seems clear from all this that the Jains must have a rather idiosyncratic view of truth. They are not skeptics who insist that truth is inaccessible, or simply suspend judgment about whether we ever have it. Rather, they seem to be relativists, in the special sense of thinking that truth is always relative to a point of view or a context in which the truth is uttered or believed. Unlike most modern-day relativists, though, they think that ultimate truth is possible. This is the truth attained by embracing an infinity of valid viewpoints all at once. The Jain philosophers realized that they were not going to be able to make this theory work within the logical system worked out by the Nyaya school, and of course Nagarjuna's destructive use of the tetralemma would hardly suit their non-one-sided aims. Instead, the Jains develop a remarkable logical theory with seven kinds of predication. We'll consider this next time, and also ask whether the Jains can avoid the same problem that threatened to undermine Nagarjuna's Madhyamaka philosophy. By endorsing the yes and no side of each issue, do the Jains fall into self-contradiction? To find out, you'll have a relatively long wait, because the podcast is going on a month-long summer break. There will be a medieval episode next week, followed by a pause until September 17th. But as the Jains might put it, look at it this way. From your perspective as a listener, a month might seem like a long time, 
But from our perspective as we work on producing the rest of the episodes on Indian philosophy, the month will be over before we know it. Taking that point of view, we'll see you next time here on the History of Philosophy in India.